morning, friends. We are in the most important part of this amazing book called Philippians. It is a song that really dictates every other bit of truth in this book. It's a song, frankly, that describes to you the, the pinnacle of the Bible's message that God has come to rescue us, and he did it in the most unbelievable, crazy, unthinkable way. And it is crazy. It's way crazy. So uh, what you may not know about me is I used to have game. I used to be able to ball a little bit. And uh, there was a time, in fact, you know, I, I uh, actually uh, shattered a backboard one time when I went up to slam, uh, slam it once. I went baseline, I went up with my left hand and tried to throw it down and kind of caught the front of the rim and, and had to push it through. And it was back before the days of really good breakaway rims and it just shattered the backboard. And as soon as that happened, there was a guy that was there and he came right up to me and he goes, bro, he goes, you gotta come speak to my kids. Man, I work in the inner city. And, and if, you've, if you've been shot in prison or shattered backboard, they will listen to you. <laughs> and so I had immediate street cred, right? And so I went and spoke to, spoke to the kids in the inner city. I had a great time and uh, just talked about this crazy story. Well, you need to know something. When Jesus has street cred because of his crazy story. But it's a crazy story. Um, one of the things that happened, you know, a little bit later is that um, there was a, a group of folks, you know, you've heard of Athletes in Action. There's a team called Spirit Express. They're, they're just basically a, a group of athletes that get together and they use sport as a way to advance the gospel. And I um, was with this group when we were asked to come play the Jamaican national team as they were trying to get ready to qualify for the Olympics. You have to go through an Olympic qualifying tournament. And so we were invited <coughs> to come to Jamaica and help their team train and play them in a three-game set and kind of an exchange for us doing that. Uh, we'd do clinics around the country, and we just said, hey, at the halftime of the games against your team, um, all we want to do is just you know, share with the audience that's there about why we are willing to come and serve you in this way. All right, A, we love basketball. B, we, the idea of going to Jamaica doesn't seem bad. And, uh, and, and C, we really want to help you guys get ready. And so anyway, we went down there. We were playing them in this three-game set. And um, you know, the Jamaican national court at the time was outside. All right, there was a way to go inside and play, but it was primarily outside. It was a nationally televised, you know, three-game set. It was, it was a big deal in their country. You know, they promoted, they talked about it, that some Americans were coming uh, down to play them in basketball. And so we went down and we played. And at halftime, each of us took a turn over the three nights, or three of us took turns, talking about the story. And I shared the story. And I remember when I was standing there in front of these Jamaicans, and I was describing to them the story that we're going to study today in Philippians. You know, because it's outdoors, because we're in Jamaica, and they smoke weed rather freely there, there were a couple of Rastafarians up in the stand. They're just lighting up, you know, during the game. And while I'm up there speaking at halftime, I could just watch a guy just take a long draw um, on, on a little joint. And I could listen to him, his mind almost think. He was looking at me it's kind of like he elbowed his buddy. When I sat there and told him the story about a God that loved them, they loved him so much that he humbled himself to become a man and to lay aside his deity and to uh, take on the form of flesh, and not just take on the form of flesh, but to become a bondservant and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But because he had lived a sinless life, the God that he was and that he trusted in redeemed him from the grave, where he now lives again and has been ascended to the right hand of God, well, he will return one day to judge the quick and the dead. And if you just acknowledge that apart from his provision... You have no hope before this holy God. You can have a relationship with this God. And it's like that guy just kind of went, 
And he elbowed his buddy like, I don't know what we're wasting our time smoking because that guy's got the good stuff. That's a crazy story. It is a crazy story. I mean, I literally had like an out-of-body experience. Just listening to what I was saying to these people, and I'm like, what in the world? Well, listen, it's either the craziest story that anybody could concoct, or it's the only story that matters. What's going on in the book of Philippians? And I'm going to remind you that Philippi was a strategic city when Rome conquered uh, the Greeks. They, they, they took control of many of their cities. This is a city that's named after Alexander the Great's father, Philippi. Um, Rome took it over, and what they did is they allowed a lot of the warriors, soldiers, who would help conquer Greece, uh, inhabit the city. And so it's a city made up of patriotic nationalists. They're, they're zealots for Rome. And they occupy the city. It's a, it's a part of the major trade route that goes through there. And Paul is making his way west, and he's telling about this crazy story of a God who loves people and redeems humanity. And the very first place in all of Europe that he hits and takes a beachhead to spread the gospel to the west is in Philippi. It's the very first Jesus community that gathers outside of Asia. Lydia is the very first convert. In some ways, it's been wisely said, we are all Lydia's children, every one of us that believes in the West. Paul developed a relationship with these people, and as he went throughout his life and continued to live faithfully, eventually, his faithfulness to proclaim the gospel everywhere and to everyone had him basically being um, accused of some crimes he didn't commit, and he had to appeal to Caesar as a Roman citizen in order to escape certain death. And so he's now in Rome, and while he's in Rome, his friends in Philippi, who loved him because he risked life and limb to tell them this crazy story that he was an eyewitness of. He had met the risen Lord. He said, this is not like the Greek gods or the Roman gods that you borrowed from the Greek gods. This isn't just a bunch of creative writers sitting down trying to explain the world. Everybody knew mythology was just that. It was a story. It was a narrative that people wrote to try and explain why there's chaos in the world and why there's good and why there's evil. And Paul is saying to them, no, listen, those are made up stories. The one God, the true God, the one that has revealed himself in the context of human history. And he did it through a group of people and they're called Hebrews. This is what he's done with them. And this is what he told them and the law and the prophets about who he was and what he was going to do. And guess what? He's done it. He's come. God has come. And when he came, he did what he said he would do. He was a suffering servant that gave his life for his people. What kind of God becomes a man and gives himself and dies and is authenticated by this act that the whole world has come to know about where God declared with power that he was who he said he was and raised him from the dead. And I met him. I saw the risen Lord. He's ascended to heaven and he will return to judge the quick and the dead. Paul, believe this. To the Jews, he reasoned with them from the Old Testament. To the Greeks and to the Romans, he reasoned to them from both creation and a personal testimony of the story. And he told this crazy story. And God allowed him to authenticate the fact that what he was saying was true through many signs and wonders as the gospel was being established, as God always, always had done. And what you need to know is what we're going to look at today, this crazy story, is the best way to understand Philippians. Let me explain it to you this way. We're going to look at Philippians 2, 6 
through 11. This is the story. This story explains the entire book of Philippians. When I sat down to chart Philippians and kind of um, worked it out, what I saw is there are basically seven little sections that Paul goes through and just says, this is the deal. This is what you need to know about what's happening in your life. And all of them only make sense as they radiate out from this story. Nothing makes sense apart from this story. But if this story is true, I want you to know these things. And so this is the book of Philippians. Seven different ideas all radiating out of this one thing. It's just like our life. It's our life ought to be a multitude of days and a multitude of, of, of stories and a multitude of events, but they all are informed by and radiate out of this crazy story, which is the craziest story that anybody's ever told, or it's the only story that matters. And you have to figure out if this story is true. So let me just walk you through this. So in chapter one, verses one through 11, Paul starts by just giving thanks. He said, oh God, thank you that you have loved us. You've given us grace through Jesus and peace with you through Jesus. You've revealed your power and you've transformed people that I love. And so Paul starts by entering this letter, which is basically a thank you note because when the Philippians heard that Paul was in prison in Rome, they, they sent a gift to him through Epaphroditus, who was one of the leaders in that believing community of, of, um, of Philippi. And they sent him a letter and they brought him gifts. And Paul, in response to those gifts, wrote a letter back. At the center of everything Paul did was this crazy story. And so he made sure that he wrote that story. It's basically a poem and it's a hymn. And out of that, he starts by saying, thanks be to God that grace and peace have come from this story, that power to change men have come from this story and that you are changed people and that you love me. And then after that, what Paul does in, in chapter one, verses 12, through 26 is he basically gives you an update on the missionary himself because his friends are concerned for him and the mission. And he just basically says, hey, this is how I'm doing. It's all good. It's okay. And this is how the mission is continuing to thrive. And this is where Paul says this thing. Listen, I'm hard pressed from two sides. I would long to die to be with Jesus so I could be out of this compromised world that is defined by sin and its effects. But I love you, and so I know if I stay, it's going to be for your benefit. This is where when I taught this section, I just said, is it true of you that if you stay here because this story has changed your life, it's a benefit for other people? Paul very clearly says, I'd rather die and go to heaven. But it's not about me. And so I'm not going to surrender. If God wants me to live, I will go back out and tell more people the story and do everything I can to strengthen you in the truth of this story. That's chapter one, verses 12 through 26. And he says, the mission is doing awesome. The missionary is fine. And then he picks it up in chapter one, verse 27, all the way through two, roughly verse 18, Paul basically comes through and says, how are you doing? Are you living the same way? Are you living the same story? Are you being God's missionaries in Philippi? How is the missionary in Philippi doing? How's the mission in Philippi doing? Join me in suffering for the glory of the gospel, just like Jesus suffered for you and changed your life. That's that section. 
And then he picks it back up. In chapter two, verses 19 through 30, he just says, let me just tell you, it's not just me, okay? It's a couple of other guys that you know and love. And he says, Timothy's doing this. Your Epaphroditus is doing this. And so here's two great examples of people that you know that are lives changed by this story. And then he picks it up. And in chapter three, verse one, which we will soon study, all the way through four one, Paul says, guess who else has got a story that's been changed? Me. Paul says, I count all things as lost. I love Paul because he just gets really graphic. He uses the word filth, but he doesn't use just the word filth. He uses the word, you're kind of like, woo, can an apostle use that word? And he says, I count it all like filth. And I'm happy to give it up and to live my life for the king. I was respected, I was celebrated, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, I was zealous for the law, I was a tribe of Benjamin, I was thought well of by my people, I was rolling in the dough, and I left it all because this story is true. And then he wraps it all up. In uh, chapter four, uh, verse two, actually, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna draw another circle here, not enough circles, because I only got six there, there's a seventh coming. In chapter four, verse two through nine, he just basically says this, become the same example. Do you see this? Thank be to God who has me doing well in the midst of living in this story that's changed my life and changed your life. Suffer with us just like Epaphroditus and Timothy did, just like I am. You do the same. And then he has one more, zero, right there, one more. The seventh is basically chapter four, verse 10 to the end of the book where Paul comes along and he says basically this, I don't mind anything in my life and you shouldn't either. It doesn't really matter what happens to us right now because at the end of the day, we're all going to be rewarded for the love that we have shown towards his name and the kindness we have shown to the saints and having ministered to them and glorifying Jesus. And so Paul says, I don't care if I'm hot or cold, rich or poor, I don't care if I'm in prison or out, for me to live is Christ. And Paul's basically saying, this story that we're gonna look at should inform every aspect of your life and informs every aspect of your life. This is a song, it's a hymn, it's a poem. I don't know if Paul heard it or somebody else wrote it in Rome and he just took it, but it's one of the very first Christian hymns and it's at the center of your life. Last night, I'm gonna tell you, man, I, I, we, we were gathered in here and we, we sang with the Shanes through the hymns. And it was, if we built this room just for that moment, it was worth it. I don't know where you were last night, but we kind of told you we were gonna be in here and it was gonna be amazing. And it was amazing. To just for over an hour, just sing amazing truths in an incredible environment with gifted artists and choir that was up here and a choir that was out here. And just singing back to one another the truths that basically can all be found right here. But here's the deal. It doesn't really matter what we sang last night. If that song, if Philippians 2, 6 through 11 doesn't change our everything, then we were just a noisy clong and a clanging cymbal. If this doesn't produce a transformed life in us, then we are like, you know, uh, we just know the song. We just know the song, but we don't know the Savior. May it never be. This is the song. This God 
who does everything he's asking you to do. He existed in the form of God. I'm just gonna read it to you. And he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's one of the very first Christian songs I ever memorized was Philippians 2, 6 through 11. Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, everyone, and that every tongue that's in every one of those creatures will praise him and confess and acknowledge that this isn't just a good song, this is true. They will agree that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's the song. And it changed my life. Because it's not just mythology that was written by a bunch of guys who scribbled some things down. It is God revealing himself anchored in the context of history. There is no event, according to Simon Greeley, who the Harvard School of Law, who wrote the empirical book that is used to this day on how to establish evidence in a court of law. He, as a non-believer, studied the resurrection, and he basically said, if we can't prosecute the resurrection and prove that it is true, then you can't prove anything. Because when you look at the eyewitness accounts, you look at the, the, the implications of what happened and pivoted out of this. It is clear that this Jesus didn't just say he was God, but he told you what he was going to do because he was God, and it was authenticated with power that he was God. And it changed Simon Greenlee's life, and it changed the world. But here's the question. Does it change you? This is not just the best Christology in the Bible, all right? When you study theology, okay, which is, um, you know, the study of God or Christology, the study of Christ or soteriology, the study of how we're saved, it doesn't matter if when you study it, all you do is become fluent in it. It's not the goal of theology for you to be a smarter sinner. The goal is that you would know truth and the truth would transform you not just inform you. So this has always been a problem. Uh, several centuries ago, it was a problem in, um, uh, in, in basically Denmark or in, um, in Holland, in, in the Netherlands region. And there was a theologian whose name was Soren Kierkegaard, and he wrote a book called Spiritual Writings. And Kierkegaard basically says this. He says, the matter is quite simple. Now watch this. The Bible is very easy to understand, but we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. This is hundreds of years old. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we're obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly and it will change your life. Watch this. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. I won't just get to live the way that I want to live because if it's true that God loves me so much that he came to redeem me and I just kind of flick my nose at that, if I say, who cares? Who cares that there's a holy God? Who cares that he did this unspeakable thing to redeem me? 
I'm just gonna kind of keep living my little way. And I'm gonna study theology and talk all about what he did, but it's not gonna ever affect me. This, guys, I'm gonna say this right here. This is the greatest Christmas hymn that ever was written. Um, Charles Wesley, when he wrote Hark the Hail of Angels Sing, it came right out of Philippians chapter two. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate, deity. The angels cannot believe it. What is this? God has become man, peace on earth, goodwill to men. The baby is God, and the angels just sang. Like, who does this? Well, who knows that and isn't changed by it? Guys, watch this. You're about to turn on your radio and not be able to avoid Christmas music. And I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but people who sing Christmas music are not all Christians, right? They make Christian Christmas albums for one reason. They sell, right? I mean, does ACDC have a Christmas album? It would not surprise me, okay? Because Christmas music is just like, man, we all love it. Did you hear what ACDC did with Joy to the World, man? It just, oh man, it's amazing. Right? They just thrash it all the way through the song. People who know those songs and sing them, I'm glad they're declaring the songs, but the goal isn't to know the song. The goal is that the song would change you. God forbid that we would get in here and sing hymns. God forbid that we would study Philippians 2, 6 through 11, and it would not radically change our life, change our everything. Paul says, I don't care what I'm talking about. It all comes back to this. The whole letter emanates out of this section. Everything in your life should emanate from this section. Kierkegaard goes on to say, how would I ever get on the world if I really dealt with the scripture? Why? Herein lies the place of Christian scholarship, he says. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible becoming too close to us. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God. Yes, it is even dreadful to be alone with the New Testament because if the New Testament is true, it ought to change your everything. Here's my question for you today. Has Jesus changed your everything? And if not, you're just like Willie Nelson when he sings, Oh, come all ye faithful. You're just selling an album. You're just floating along. You're doing what culture basically tells you to do, by and large still in the West. But when push comes to shove, it isn't about Jesus, it's about you. May it never be. There's another guy who wrote this, his name is, uh, wrote about this idea, and I wanna just share it with you again because this is such a big deal. When he was writing basically a commentary on James chapter one, verse 22, which says, be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. This is a guy named A.W. Tozier. A.W. Tozier writes this, there's scarcely anything so dull and meaningless as Bible doctrine taught for its own sake. We're not trying just to inform you every week if you haven't noticed. One of the things that just drives me nuts is people go, oh yeah, well watermark, man. They've got kind of the watermark way. I go, time out, what's the watermark way? I didn't know we had a watermark way. There is no watermark way. If there is, let us repent of it. But there is the way. The book of Acts says the way. These people live a different way. Why are they living differently than Jews and Gentiles? Why do these Christians live differently? Well, because of this. It's changed their life. I hear the watermark ways, man, you guys are a do church. It's like do, do, do at watermark, right? We're just a be church. We just sit and soak in the grace of the song. 
I pray nobody ever says, all we do is sing and just accept the grace that God has given us. Let me just tell you, without the grace of God, it doesn't matter what we do, but because of the grace of God, it should change everything we do. It's not a watermark way. It's James chapter 1, verse 22. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves and just stop. That was a wonderful theological lesson this morning, Pastor. Just don't ask me to do anything with it. That's the American church by and large. Listen, this is not new. This is what Tozer wrote. Truth divorced from life is not truth in a biblical sense, but something else and something less. No man is better for knowing that God in the beginning created the heaven and the earth. The devil knows that. And so did Ahab and Judas Iscariot. No man is better for knowing that God so loved the world of men that he gave his only begotten son to die for the redemption. In hell, there are millions of people who know that. Theological truth is useless unless it is obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. Any man with a fair pulpit gift can get on with the average congregation if he just feeds them and lets them alone. Oh, my goodness. I got to tell you, that is true. And you know what the church is full of? The church is full of um, theological um, critics who basically go and go, let me hear what he has to say. Was that true? No, I don't know if I agree with that. And they're there to kind of evaluate the, the, the pastor's theological acumen or maybe his entertainment value. Did he hold my attention? But the truth, no matter what it is, never holds their heart. A lot of pastors are really fine with this. That's why they don't really call you to anything. If you haven't noticed here, we're just trying to say, guys, we don't care if you come to Watermark. Watermark is irrelevant unless it is a Jesus community of which God has called you to be a part so that you can grow in your faith, develop your gifts with faith, and deploy them for glory so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that's why we say, if you're here and you theologically agree with us, way to go. I'm glad you know the Christmas song. But if you're not radically transformed, you are not a regular attender at a theologically well-informed church, you are an irregular believer. And it ought to make you really uncomfortable that you just got a Christmas album out like Willie. And you don't have a Christmas-informed life like Paul. And so we're just saying, hey, none of us are perfect. That's why we're so thrilled with this song. But let's spur each other on to love and good deeds in every area of our life. Are y'all with me? It should change you. He goes on to say this. Um, any man with fair pulpit gifts can get on with average congregation. He just feeds them and lets them alone. Give them plenty of objective truth and never hint that they are wrong and should be set right and they will be content. You show up, you validate me with your existence, you tell me I'm a good theological preacher, sometimes even entertaining. You give me enough money to keep the lights on so we can do hymns live Saturday nights and I won't ask too much of you and we'll both tell each other we're doing what Jesus wants us to do. On the other hand, the man who preaches the truth and applies it to the lives of his hearers will feel the nails and the thorns. He will lead a hard life, but a glorious one. Hey, that's not just me, that's you. Can I just tell you what's going on here every week? I say it all the time. Um, this, is, this is a prophet's school. We are training you to be prophets. We are reminding you what is the truth of God, and we're calling you to live faithfully as God's heralds. Hark the herald, angels sing. Not just the spirit beings that were created, but the messengers of God that are alive on earth who know this song. It's why Paul wrote this. Hey, man, suffer with me. Be all about what Jesus wants with me, like Timothy and Epaphroditus, like me. That ought to be you. And it doesn't matter what happens to us because God will highly exalt us in due time.
And so off we go. This is a pastor's conference, and we're reminding ourselves what God wants us to do this week. I love that I get to use my gifts. I thank you that you let me use my gifts, and here we go. Watch this. Here we go again. Let's just break this apart. Verse 6, who although, talking about Jesus, that we are to have this attitude in ourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. What's the attitude of Jesus? Well, he did nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, he considered others as more important than himself. He did not merely look out for his own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And if you know the story and the story has changed you, that ought to be you. Look, you need to know something. This is what Paul wants to remind them of. This is, this is not primarily here to teach theology about Jesus. He is saying, you serve the greatest king. Remember who he's writing to, a bunch of ex-soldiers. Hey, I know you went to war for Caesar, and I know Caesar set you up here in Philippi and has given you a life and a purpose, but let me just tell you something. The king of kings, he didn't just set you up. He went to war for you. He won a battle you can't win. He died for you, and you should love him. Great leaders never ask more of their servants than they are willing to do themselves. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter uh, 10, in verses 42 through 45. He calls his disciples to himself, and Jesus said to them, Hey, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, the scripture says, lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them? But it's not to be that way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And then Jesus just says, listen, man, even the son of man. That is a messianic title from the book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel. The the son of man was prince of peace, eternal father, mighty God. Even mighty God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus is begging those people who know the story to be like him and to be servants of God. He said, this world is not going to last. What's going to last is the reign of the king. And I am joining you to the sovereign God who loves you so much that he came and is going to die for you and do what you can't do. Let me just tell you something. Kids, the second generation church in Philippi was not going to seek Jesus if their um, veteran fathers who um, heard the story of Paul started singing this song but were still angry, uh, still uh, wavering in what their purpose was now they're no longer able to go to war for Caesar, still largely indifferent to mom, still going and participating in, in temple prostitution and uh, not leading in their home and caring for their children. But you find a veteran father who deals with his post-traumatic stress disorder with hope and has a peace that passes understanding, who starts to lovingly and tenderly serve his spouse in the way that Jesus served the church, and he turns his heart towards home, and he raises his young son to be a man and doesn't say, you don't even know how to suffer. You don't know what it was like. You know how we got Philippi? Your old man went to war. Toughen up. No, but he becomes a tender father. 
and loves his son and tells his son, I thought Caesar was worth dying for. I thought Rome was the kingdom. No, Rome is a fleeting kingdom. There's a king of kings who died for your dad that no matter what he could have done, he could have never saved himself. And this king saved me. His name is Jesus and I serve Jesus. And you're gonna see me marked by his song. And you're gonna see your father become a tender warrior, a humble servant who seeks your interest and mom's interest and this community's interest. And I don't care what this community does to me because I live for the king. That little boy is going to say, tell me more about this God who can save my dad. Tell me more about this God who restores. Tell me about this God who gives peace, heroic purpose, and hope. But dads who know the song, who go to church in Philippi, who aren't transformed, that doesn't change anything. It says right here in, in, in this little section, it says, who although he exists in the form of God, prior to the incarnation, all you saw when you looked at Jesus was glory. And then you're about to see this. Paul basically goes through this little song. This is Philippians 2, 6 through 11. He was born. He took on flesh. That's what incarnate means, okay? Carnal means flesh. He was in the flesh. Born into humanity. Not just any human. He was a bondservant. He didn't do what he wanted to do. He did what was best for you. Because he loves you. And he lived an obedient life so that when the wages of sin were paid, he had no debt. So when he paid for sin, he could pay for yours. It wasn't just any death, it was death on a cross. And Paul is saying, hey man, if God did that for you, it ought to change you. I love this. It says he did not regard equality with thing to be grasped. In other words, to be utilized to be asserted. I told you this is not primarily a theological passage. It's a moral lesson. Paul's saying this is the greatest leader that ever lived, right? We love leaders that use their power to serve us. The problem today is most leaders use power to maintain power. It's why we don't like Congress, right? Mark Twain, almost 100 years ago, said, suppose you were an idiot. And suppose you were a member of Congress. But I repeat myself, all right? That's what he said. One of the reasons that Congress has such a low Q rating is because they do things like vote for themselves a health care program that is not like the rest of the citizens. What do we do with our power? Well, let's give us this health care option and we'll give everybody else this health care option and we'll tell them that we're here because we love them and we're their elected representatives and we'll do everything we can to get elected again so we can vote for ourselves more entitlements. And we go, I don't think I like that kind of servant king. Jesus was not like that. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. He didn't regard with quality a thing to be grasped. This is what's called the hypostatic union, right? But watch this. I'm not here to teach you about the hypostatic union. What's that? What is the hypostatic union? What's he use that word for? Okay. The hypostatic union is that Jesus never stopped being God. His divine nature never left him, but he added to his divine nature his humanity. But he did not regard in that perfect blend of two natures, one fully present, the other fully present, either without in any way compromising the other. He did not use his deity for his own benefit. That's what the word grasp meant. It means that he didn't utilize it. He didn't assert his deity ever in order to escape the troubles of the human condition. He relates in every way that you have. He knows how hard it is to trust the Father. But here's the thing. Jesus knew the truth. He knew the song of the goodness of the Father so good that he in his perfect eternal state 
loved people so much that he would humble himself this way to redeem them. And any God that would do that is worth trusting while you're here on earth. But Jesus knew it wasn't easy, right? Jesus was greatly distressed, just like you were. He's been tempted in every way as you have been. There were times when he, as a man, was trusting in the Father. He's like, Dad, I'm not really sure I like this. In fact, there's got to be another way. If there's anything that we can do besides the cross, by the way, other humans, will you pray for me? Because I'm not sure I can do this. Other humans, will you pray for me? I'm not sure I can do this. Other humans, will you pray for me three times? Because I'm not sure I can do this. But every time he went back to the Father and said, Father, this is going to come down to me and you. Do I trust you? If there's any other way to pull this thing off, our love of redeeming others, to serve man by me dying and being separated from you, the only thing that I don't ever want to happen, let it be another way. But at the very end of the day, he says, not my will, but your will be done. That's the song. If it is true that Christ is God and he did that for me, then no response to that is ridiculous. This is the section of scripture right here. It says, he didn't regard it a thing to be grasped. I love what it says in the King James Version. Not very often do I take you to the King James, but the King James Version at the very end of chapter six says this, he thought it not robbery to be, uh, to, he thought it not robbery to not be equal with God. In other words, nobody had to steal from him his godness. Nobody had to tell him he couldn't use his deity for himself because he gladly laid it down. Why? Because he does nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, he considers others as more important than himself. And so you don't have to take my glory. I'm just going to lay it aside because I love you. He emptied himself. This is what theologians love this word. It's the word kanoo. It just basically means um, he rendered void. Even though he was God, he just said, I'm not going to act on my godness. I'm going to take the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of a man, I'm going to humble myself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then there's this amazing section. For this reason, what reason? Because he did the thing that should be highly exalted. Guys, if it is true, we sing songs every week about this. This is why we gather. I'm going to sing again. This crazy God in his almost what appears to me irresponsible, reckless love, became a man and let man that he created, that he had power and sovereignty over, spit at him, reject him, mock him, call him a lunatic, call him a demon, and nailed him to a cross like he had no power. Because he knew that in letting them do that, he would die a sinner's death so that he could pay a sinner's debt so he could set sinners free. That is either the most weed-smoking, LSD-tripping story ever told, or it is the only song that matters. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, on earth, under earth, and every tongue will confess. Can I just say this to you? Sometimes we call people non-believers, and that is not a biblically accurate term. There is no such thing as a non-believer. What we should call people is a not yet believer. My Bible says that one day, Bill Gates, Bill Cosby, Steve Jobs, Donald Trump, 
Oprah, Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, Albert Einstein, Thomas Edison, Barack Obama, Charles Darwin, Denzel Washington, Kim Kardashian, Anderson Cooper, Stephen Hawking, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Kate McKinnon, LeBron James, Steven Spielberg, Woody Allen, Jennifer Lopez, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Richard Dawkins, Anne Ram, Muhammad, Gandhi, Buddha, you will acknowledge this is true. It's gonna happen. They are not yet believers. But they're gonna say, this is true. I confess, he is king, he is Lord. Rome was a joke, Caesar was a joke. There's only one life that matters. And Paul says, it ought to change your everything. If Jesus hasn't changed your everything, you don't know Jesus. This is like the ultimate undercover boss episode. That's what this is. <laughs> right? Now, in all fairness, right? In all fairness, like the undercover boss episode, you go, look at the humility of these CEOs. They're just doing grunt work, right? They're letting people that work for them that they could fire boss them around. Right? They're so humble. They're not humble. They know who they are. They know where this is headed. They didn't lose their salary. The board's not going to fire them. And they're just walking around letting people dismiss them, right? And they know they're being filmed. They know that everything they do is going to be captured, so they're gracious and hardworking and diligent because they know at the end of the episode they're going to do this great reveal and they're going to be the CEO and everybody's going to bow before them and go, oh, dang. I wish I'd have been a little more thoughtful in the way that I treated you and trained you and worked hard. I didn't know I was in your presence. Jesus knew he was in the presence of the Father, that everything, in a sense, was being filmed, just like you and I. Now, here's the amazing thing. Guess what? All the crap that I'm like, Ugh, oh, dang, I hope that's edited out. <laughs> this story says it's edited out, that he died for all that crap that we still do. But there's going to be a day when he just shows the highlight reel. All the times that we live faithfully in light of the story and he's going to highly exalt us for all that stuff. You know what that makes me want to do? It makes me want him to not have to edit out very much. It makes me want to live today the way I'm going to want to live when I know what I know that I sing about. That's what it makes me want to do. So then, this is the application, verse 12. So then, my beloved. This is Paul writing to his friends. Just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. What he's saying right here is don't be Eddie Haskell Christians. And half the body says, Who, who's Eddie Haskell? Okay. <laughs> Quit binge watching Netflix. Tune into TV land. Get your PhD in Andy Griffin. All right. Get your mastered and leave it to beavers. All right. Eddie Haskell was, was Wally's friend, right? And he always showed up. He was always buttoned up. Hello, Mr. Cleaver, Mrs. Cleaver, you look lovely today. Did you just get your hair done? Is Wallace home? Is Theodore available? But Eddie Haskell was a snake. And the very first chance he had when, when June and Ward weren't around, he just goes and tries to lead Wally and Theodore to an early death and rebellion with him and Lumpy. That's what he does, all right? And June and Ward were on to his game. And Paul's saying, don't be an Eddie Haskell. Don't show up to church or don't act like you love Jesus when I'm around. 
do it all the time. Work out your salvation, which is not to say work for your salvation. If you're working for your salvation, you're a heretic and you just missed the story. You just missed the point. You just missed that apart from this, you can't be saved. And guess what? Because of Jesus, you are saved. Praise be to God. It should change your everything. This week, one of the guys on our team left. Um, he, he's been with us for 10 years, Matt Armstrong. You don't know Matt Armstrong because Matt Armstrong lives in the shadows. He's just a humble servant. And Matt wrote a letter to our staff, as most folks who make a transition have. And he just says, staff family, 10 years seem to have flown by, and I hardly know how to write this or how to say goodbye. The impact of this place on me and my family is immense. In a time when I needed humility and direction, God brought me here through a few friends and it changed my life. He said, you guys are incredible. Now he's going to start to thank some people that impacted his life. Listen to what Matt said. Chance Fletcher. You don't know Chance Fletcher. Because Chance Fletcher just is here serving humbly in the shadows, just like Matt. Making sure this facility is ready and working. Making sure that... that um, cracks are fixed and paint that's chipped is redone and chairs that are broken are fixed and stuff that needs to be waxed is waxed. He goes, Chance Fletcher, your calm, humble demeanor is known and spoken off of by me and others with awe. Scott Kadersha, you know, Scott is the guy on our staff that loves everybody like nobody. Our staff has a lot of turnover, especially in our, our uh, support staff because you know, uh, different things happen in life stage in their early 20s, and so a lot of people are transitioning on and off. But you know who always knows everybody's first and last name? Scott Kadersha. All the time. Because he loves people. He said, Scott Kadersha, your grace and wisdom, your love for people impacted my marriage long before our two-and-two -two counseling. Daniel Merchant, you don't know Daniel Merchant because he lives in a cave back here. And he makes everything work. I got a letter this week from some dude in a, a Mandeste, South Africa. And he says, Todd, I had no idea that I was being taught a lie. I'm in a word of faith church. We watch what you guys broadcast from the United States on TV. But I found these messages on Real Truth real quick that taught me Bible doctrine. It made me go look at other doctrine that you guys have. I'm being discipled. It's changing my life. And I need to help the church in South Africa know the truth. That happened because of Daniel Merchant, Chris Mano, Jeremy Jaqua, Sammy. It happens because people, you'll never know their names, log that stuff, work that stuff, and make things happen so that it can be useful and used. He goes on to say, admins, you're the most elite group of cat herders I've ever seen. That's a great description. I'll keep this from becoming a tone, but I, I want you to know uh, I, these are a few people that make me want to be more like Jesus. Do you see who he didn't mention in this? He didn't mention JP, one of the most gifted young leaders I've ever seen. He didn't mention Todd Wagner. You know, this week I had some friends that came to me and just sat me down. The guys I lead with, the elders in my community. And they just said to me, hey, Todd, can I just tell you something? And we're, the crazy, humble Todd Wagner that we love, we feel like in the last few conversations or there's been some examples, well, that's just been diminished. And I'm like, oh my, what? What? I mean, there's nothing they could have said that pierced my heart and made me grieve and want to repent and understand 
I said, man, thank you guys for telling me. That is the most wounding thing that anybody has said to me in the last two decades. But thank you. What, what do you see? Because the scripture says that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. It goes brighter and brighter until the new day comes. The more I'm conforming the image of Jesus, the more I become a humble servant. You're telling me you see less crazy humble in me in the last few times we've been together than what you've seen in 20 years? And they said, yes, and we, know, we love you, and so we're going to point it out to you. And I said, praise be to God. Let the righteous smite me with kindness. Let it be as... Let them reprove me. It's like oil upon my head because all I want to do is be like Jesus. I don't want to teach through Philippians, man. I want Philippians to teach me. And I need you to pray for me. And I pray for you. Father, may our beautiful Savior affect our lives. May we not just sing Christmas carols. May Christmas carols songs scream through us in everything we do. I thank you for your incredible love. I thank you for our beautiful Savior. What a beautiful name it is. May this beautiful story be the center of our lives. May this beautiful song change our everything to the glory of the Father. May we get on our knees now and walk as bondservants of him. May we not just be deluded hearers, but your angels who hail the incarnate deity in Jesus' name.